right, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 1. It's really, it's really funny, David's sharing with you and stuff, it, it goes right along with this sermon this morning, and uh, he just sent me the slides yesterday, so I didn't like steal David's thunder, so, um, but uh, yeah, so Mark chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 28 this morning, um, remember that Mark is a written testimony by John Mark, who we know from Acts was a missionary compa uh, companion to Paul and Barnabas, and there's a little bit of history there we'll discuss as we go through the book. And he's now a, he's, he was a helper to Paul eventually, he was a helper to Peter, and, and as the, he witnessed some of this as well as the Holy Spirit revealed this to him, and he wrote it down. And uh, it's, it's a brief, abridged gospel meant to tell us, the readers, about the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul, Mark wants to get at. And that's why a lot of his stories, they're so much longer in Matthew or they're so much longer in Luke. Well, Mark's just getting to the point. He's wanting to hit the highlights of the life with Jesus Christ. And so last week he revealed in verses 1 through 13 that there was a prophecy and that it was fulfilled by a messenger who had a message. And then he also showed us that the Messiah was revealed as well. Well, now Jesus takes center stage as he is most of the Bible anyway, but he takes center stage in this story and initiates the kingdom of God right there in first century Palestine with three events. So let's read the passage and then we'll uh, walk through this. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. They were all amazed. So they began to ask each other, What is this new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once, news about him spread throughout the entire region of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, and we thank you for what it demonstrates so vividly. May our hearts take consideration of what it's speaking to us. Illuminate our minds to it, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Do you ever know someone that just likes to make an entrance when they come into a room or a setting? They just kind of like, 
They're all over the place when they walk in. They make an entrance. They like making an entrance. Well, the kingdom of God just made an entrance when you read this passage. Um, and after his baptism and after his temptation, Jesus takes deliberate steps to bring the, the kingdom of God to their attention. He's introducing them to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus debuts God's kingdom through several things, preaching, calling, teaching, and even defeating evil in the world. So what are the events that, that debuts the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus displays God's kingdom with three specific events. First, preaching, then calling, and then spiritual warfare. So let's look at the first one. Jesus preaches the best message you could ever hear. Verses 14 and 15. L let me read that again. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. See, John the baptizer was arrested, and we're going to cover that when we get to chapter 6. It was about Herod's brother's wife that Herod married, but that's, that's, we'll cover that in chapter 6. But that's kind of a, a time stamp Mark puts here to let the people that are reading this in first century AD understand where it is in the flow of the whole history. John the Baptist, Jesus, the disciples, the death, the crucifixion. It's just one more way to get it, it kind of clear in their minds what's going on and when it went on. And then they shows that Jesus went into the region of Galilee. So he went down to be baptized, went out into the wilderness to get tempted, and now he's coming back into Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem, pretty far. It's a region uh, controlled by the Romans. The Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Galilee, is there in the center, kind of of it. And so he's producing himself right there, and he's beginning to walk around and preach. And his preaching ministry is simple. He preached the good news, or the gospel, of God. What is that? Well, we usually don't say that word, the God, good news or the gospel of God. We usually don't use that term, but Mark uses it quite a bit. Paul uses it some. But we need to understand something. The gospel, the gospel we all know and believe in here, is from God. He is both the source and the object of the gospel. It is from God, and it is about God. And so God sent his son to save humanity from their sins and that's the essence of it and that is the good news that's why it's good news see last week we talked a lot about the good news that that john was proclaiming that and that jesus was demonstrating the best message that ever comes to humanity it's the message about forgiveness with god it's the message about restoration to god and it's new life in christ jesus that's the message now it says he says jesus says the time is fulfilled well what time is that well, they didn't have wristwatch, so it's not that kind of time. It's, it's basically what was foretold from Genesis 3.15 on, that there will one day be someone come, a Savior, and he will crush Satan's head. And that time was fulfilled. It was the right time for Jesus to come. Paul says that in a couple of places, Romans and Galatians. It was the perfect time. And, and the kingdom of God is near. Now, how is the kingdom of God near? Because Jesus is near. That's what he's, he's conveying to him. Jesus, the Son of God, and if you need proof of that, go back to verses 1, 8, and 11. It's clear in there that Jesus is the Son of God. He arrives. That it, that's the closest that any human being is ever going to get to the kingdom of God on this planet. 
And of course, now we have the, the Holy Spirit living in us, and that's the closest we will get until we go to heaven and experience that. But, you know, we need to understand something as believers in Christ. We live kind of in a tension of what's already happened in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and what's going to happen when he comes back. So it's kind of a tension of an already, we're saved, we're born again, we're secure, and not yet, because it's not completely fulfilled yet. The kingdom is, of God is kind of a personal reign on souls of men, but it's also a comprehensive reign over all of the universe. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. The kingdom of God is near because the creator of the universe is near, the savior of the soul is near, it is near. And Jesus is God representing that kingdom. And Jesus' message, <laughs> this message, repent and believe the good news, is not a new message. This message goes, I mean, this message is the same as John's was last week we talked about. It's also the same as Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah. You go down all the prophets. At some point in their prophetic writings, they said, repent and trust God. Repent and believe the good news. The message has not changed. Repent of evil disobedience and believe in God's Savior, the Christ. That's, that's it. It's not very complicated. And that's the message we need to be propagating. Eventually, when they're ministering on a college campus, that's what they're going to get to, that message. And it's the best message ever preached. It's got mercy. It's got grace. It's got hope. It's got eternal life wrapped up in it. It should get you excited because you have that message if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You know how you tell if, if, if good news is really good news? Because it spreads. People tell it. And it lasts. You realize that this message of grace is the oldest message that's, that's ever stuck around in any religious setting. All the old religions of the Old Testament are pretty much gone today. Islam wasn't around till 600 AD. This message of Jesus Christ has been around forever. Why? Because it's good. It's the best ever. So we need to remember that. Isaiah even spoke of it. I want to give you this example of when he spoke of it. He said, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Well, that's a comforting thought when we face trials and difficulties. Now, have you ever thought about why the good news is, is the good news or the best news? Well, we need to think about it this way. We need to think about what our crimes against God did to humanity. What's it, what's it done to humanity? Because we're doomed. If you think about it and you understand it completely, God said you're dead in sin, you're eternally damned because you disobeyed my word. Adam and Eve found that out the hard way when they got kicked out of the garden. And they pass that down to all of us. We are doomed. Now, do you want a solution to that? I know I do. Doomed in the eyes of God, not a good place to be. The solution to that is the fact that Jesus came to reconcile us with God. To be, that's that's got to be the greatest news ever. What makes this the best news, really, in our own hearts, is when we realize that because of the crimes we've committed, we needed a scapegoat. 
We needed someone to take the blame. You know what? That's what Jesus Christ came to be. The scapegoat is not some new term that you hear on, on uh, TV dramas about crime and stuff. The scapegoat goes all the way back to the children of Israel. There were two goats every year. One was slaughtered for the sins, and one was sent out into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Of course, it eventually died because in the wilderness, there's lots of wild animals that like to eat goat. So Jesus became our scapegoat. He chose to be crucified for our sins. That should get you a little excited. He rose to grant us access to heaven, all because of grace. You don't have to do anything except believe it. It's free. Grace. Wow. So, now, just like Jesus preached, here's the step. Repent of your evil. That's the step one. But there are two steps together. Give up all the evil ways that you've trusted in and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive eternal life. That's what Jesus is preaching. I mean, mine, they're in red in this particular Bible and it's like, it's not very long. Repent and believe the good news. I mean, that's what Jesus is preaching. Are you taking the good news for granted? Are you ignoring it? As some sort of old religious scare tactic? I've heard people talk about, oh, yeah, you use hell as a scare tactic. Well, hell is real. I'm sorry to tell you that. But it is real. So give up religion and get Jesus. It's a big difference. Religion is us trying to get to God. Christianity is God coming down to us. And if you believe it's really good news, you'd accept it and you'd tell it. You'd spread it with your mouth. (laughs) You would speak it, not just in your ideas. Jesus preached the best sermon ever, right there. We, We need to let that ring in our ears and repent and believe the good news. So Jesus preaches the best message. He preaches the kingdom in, and they're hearing it. But he also recruits for the kingdom. And that's, step, that's point number two. Jesus calls followers. This is a great passage. Let me read it for you again. As he passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. I would hope so. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. God's kingdom enters by enlisting followers. This is one of the other ways that Jesus demonstrates that the kingdom of God is here. He expect, God expects his children to live out their faith. If you believe the good news, you live it out. He expects that. Not to get saved, but because you're saved. That's what he expects. The Sea of Galilee kind of became a base of operations for Jesus and his ministry. And, of course, along those shores, fishing. Fishing is a big deal. It's a way to earn money, many of them there. So it was fishermen along there, common blue-collar folks, not educated. I don't even know if any of them were literate. Most of the time they're not. But Jesus walks past a whole bunch of fishermen, I'm sure, before he settles on those four brothers. Simon and Andrew. Simon's called Peter later, and 
James and John. Why did he pick those four? I don't know. I don't. There's no commentary commenting on that. Why did he pick those particular four fishermen? They weren't the only four out there on the Sea of Galilee, guaranteed. Why did he pick? I don't know. Except you can guess at it, but I know this. Anyone God calls, his calling is by his sovereign choice. His sovereign grace, whether it's to salvation, whether it's to ministry, whether it's to apostleship in their case, whether it's to service, all who are called are, are saved to serve God. So if you're saved, guess what? You're called. You're called to serve. What was their responses? Well, faithful obedience. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they just dropped everything. I think that's setting an example for us. They dropped everything that was in the way of following Jesus. And that was their nets and their business. <clears throat> now, fishing, I think, is a little parallel to their, to their apostleship that they eventually came to be after Pentecost. Um, see, Jesus knew that fishermen were determined. If you've ever fished, you've got to be determined. You've got to be persistent. And as a kid, I was never patient. I kept pulling my cork out of the water to see if the, hook, the worm was still there. They are patient. And they're risk takers. They, they, they didn't have fish finders back then, by the way. You just looked around, threw a net, hoped it settled in over the fish, and you got some fish. I think that may be one reason why Jesus may have picked them for their profession. He, he called them with what they knew. You are fishermen. I, I, am, I will make you fish for people. Now, notice what Jesus says there. He didn't say, I will make you catch people. He will make you fish for people. This doesn't mean he's, they're going to catch. See, the gospel ministry is fishing. It's not catching. There's no guarantees. We cast the net of the gospel out and ask God to save their souls and hope God brings them in. But that's what we're called to do. You're not called to dive under there and put the fish in the net. That's just not our, our thing. That's not what we're called to do. See, Jesus took their vocation and he turned it into their obsession for the souls of men. And these men changed the world. There is nothing in our world today that was not and is not touched by Christianity because of these 11 men. Why would they respond so quickly? I mean, why wasn't there some debate what do you think, Simon? What do you think, Andrew? What do you think, James? Why didn't they have any debate? Because they saw in Jesus Christ, they saw the Son of God there. They saw someone they could follow. They saw someone that they could give their life over to and never regret it. They saw someone that they could trust. Do you? Do you see in Jesus someone you can trust with all of your life, every aspect of your life? They left their livelihood. They left their family in some cases. Not completely leaving, not deserting, but they left being around their family. They left stability. I mean, Simon and Andrew knew Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hands, but they left it. They left the stability. And they obeyed immediately. And I want to tell you something this morning. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Delaying to obey what you know is right, that's just disobedience. I mean, we try to live the life right, and that's good, but trying isn't right. 
succeeding is by living the, the, the truth out. When you know what to do, then do it. That's what God expects. And that's what we should try to do because we love our Savior so much. I mean, James and John, they gave up a business that was, looks pretty successful because they had hired men with the father in the boat. So it indicates that there was a business involved. They didn't just leave casual fishing. They left a business, a thriving business probably. And understand this, James was the first apostle martyred for the cause of Christ. Go to Acts chapter 12 to read about that. He left it all for the sake of the call. Jesus selects, Jesus calls, and then he expects his followers to obey. No ifs, ands, or buts. Mark uses the word immediate in these, this calling thing. He uses the word immediate a lot in his gospel, but he's really using it here to emphasize the urgency of Christ's calling and his ministry. These four guys immediately followed Jesus, and that's what we're called to do. Paul talks about it in, in that God chooses people for his purpose, and then he equips them for the purposes for which he's called them. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Now, we're all familiar with Romans 8, 28, but we like to quote that one a lot. But let me tell you, let me show you what's connected to that. And we know that for those who love God, there's a condition, love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you are called for his purpose. For those he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He wants you to be like Jesus. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. As a believer, this is speaking to us. We quote that verse, Romans 8, 28, a lot of times when we're struggling with stuff. But you've got to remember that the whole context is about us being called according to God's purpose. So we may not see it as good because we've got such poor standards of what good and bad and ugly is. But God sees what we're going through as good and he's using it. Every bit of it. There is no such thing as luck. There is no such thing as happenstance. There's really no such thing as coincidence. Because God's in control. And we may see it as coincidence because we don't know what's going on. But we know that God is working all things together. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were called to a special task. I'm not going to make us sound like we all got to, you know, leave our jobs and go follow Jesus. Initially, they were called, though, just to be disciples. That means just to be a learner, a student. They weren't called and told right then they needed to be apostles, which are anointed messengers. They were just learners. They're just students, kind of following Jesus around. But in the end, they became apostles. And they were gifted in ways to confirm the word of God as they went all over preaching and teaching. So who of us is called here? Give me a hand. Come on, give me some hands. Who's called? You're all called if you believe in Jesus Christ, whether you like it or not. Jesus has called you. I tell you, if... It, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're called. And God gifts every regenerated soul. So if you're a born-again believer of Jesus Christ, you have a gift, some spiritual gift. You may have more than one. You, may, you have a spiritual gift. We all come to faith in Jesus Christ by grace as disciples first, Matthew 28, 19. 
go and make disciples. We come that way. We're learners. We're students. But by that same grace, he gifts us to serve. He gifts us to use our gifts for his glory and his kingdom. See, baptism, is, baptism appears just the starting line, not the finish line. It's where we start our Christian faith. I mean, so many times we focus on getting people saved, and that's a good thing. But once we dunk them, it's time to push them and get them down the track. That's the starting line. Baptism is the starting line of our faith. And when we testify by that symbol in the baptistry, we take that first step of many steps in our walk of faith to grow in Christ. You know, a year ago, I looked it up, a year ago I preached and taught some lessons on spiritual gifts. A year ago. I asked you to pray about that to consider what your spiritual gift is and help discover it. And not many people have come to me and said, I think my spiritual gift, or I want to try this, but that's what I'm asking you to do. Sometimes it's harder to discern them. But if you spend time searching, you will find it. And just because you volunteer for one thing in this church doesn't mean you're obligated for the rest of your life, okay? We're, we believe in a very much of a teaching environment. You may try something. If it doesn't work, great. We can get you out of it, and we'll find you another place to try out your gift. And if you've not been trying to find your gift, you really are disobeying. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. If you're not trying to find out what your gift is and use it, you're disobeying. God gave us the gifts for us to use. He calls you to get beyond just baptism. He calls you to get beyond fire insurance, as some people call it. He calls you to get beyond just church membership even. Joining the church is a great thing. So you can serve. Paul tells the Ephesians, so that the body of Christ may be built up. That's why we're gifted. That's why we're given what we're given. See, believers, you are called to serve God in both behavior and function. You're supposed to be light and salt in both how you behave and also what you do. That's just what's clear in Scripture. So are you obeying or are you delaying? Have you been procrastinating finding your gift? Are you still standing on the starting line dripping wet after baptism? Move. Go. That's what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 28, 19. Go. So the kingdom of God, it enters by Jesus' preaching, and now you see it entering by recruiting followers of Jesus. But the next event, the next event sheds light on the spiritual warfare that Jesus is waging when he's here on earth. Jesus reigns over evil, and I thank God that he does. Look at this instance, 21 through 28. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. They were all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, what is this new teaching with authority? He commanded even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. Boy, the, the, the kingdom of God enters here with authority over mind and soul and evil. 
And Jesus goes right away in Capernaum. And I've been, I've been to this place. It's actually what's standing there now in the ark. Old is an old fourth century synagogue, but it's on the site of the first century, and it's just the center of town. Jews put together synagogues during their exile time because they didn't have the temple. So he goes right to the religious center of town, the synagogue, the Jewish center, I guess, of town. And there's a privilege in the synagogue that if you're a teacher, even not even necessarily a well-known teacher, but you have the credentials of a teacher, you're invited to speak on Sunday morning or Sabbath, which is Saturday morning to them, but you're invited to speak. And Jesus got that privilege. That's how come he began to teach. And his teaching carries a weight and a power unknown to the people. They've never heard this before. He speaks with authority as one who knows the scripture's origin, like he was there when it was written, because he was, okay? But they don't know that yet. But usually what happens in a, in a synagogue worship service is they take an Old Testament passage because they didn't have a New Testament. They had the, only the Old Testament. They take an Old Testament passage. They read it. Uh, usually some rabbi or priest will read it. And then if he's going to let a teacher uh, talk, it's usually asking him to address that particular text. But usually a scribe will teach just what he's been taught by his other rabbis. So, you know, that's the difference. One of the differences between Jesus' teaching and the scribes or the teachers of the law, he had authority. What kind of authority? His words were, the Lord God says. Not Rabbi What's-His-Name says or wrote this. He doesn't quote other people, which is why I don't use a lot of quotes in my sermons. It's like, I think we need to hear God's word. We don't necessarily need to hear what other people think God's word says. And that's, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He taught from a position of a true believer of what God says, of God's words. Peter even reminds us when he's talking about spiritual gifts, he says, speak and preach as speaking the very words of God. And hopefully we are. And my aim here is not for you to hear me, but hear this, the word of God. That's, that's all I ever try to do. And Billy Graham did the same thing. And the Bible says, and God says, as he points across the pulpit, um, it's always about God's word and what he's saying. And then a disruption happens. I'm just trying to imagine what would happen in our service if something like that went on. Someone walks in the back door, stands up, and screams those things out. But this, is just, this man with an unclean spirit, he speaks out. Now, they use the word unclean here. The Jews used it because it was kind of a euphemism, because demon just sounded too harsh. And so they always use the word unclean. And Mark's using it here to kind of make a connection. Later he'll use the word demon in other, in other instances of Jesus confronting uh, the demons. But notice the words of this demon, not the man. The, the demon is speaking through the man. He says, why are you here? That's really what he's saying first. Are you destroying us? And I know who you are. Now let me give you a little lesson in demonology here, okay? Satan does not have omnipotent control over his demons. We would love to think that, but Satan does not. So demons can sometimes venture out and do what they want to do. As long as God allows it. We always got to put that caveat on it because God's still in control of everything. So this demon in this man, in the service, heard the word of God being preached. And he couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand it. He just had to say something. So the God's word drove him to speak out. God's word drove him to reveal himself and show where he was hiding. Now, of course, Jesus is God, so we know he kind of knew, but, and he was kind of expecting this. I don't think he was surprised. 
But see, what, here's what the demon was presuming to do. The demon presumed to control Jesus with his insinuations. He was trying to, to drive Jesus' agenda by what he said. But he was using very unsavory means to do that. So Jesus quieted the demon, shut him up, shut him down, because he didn't want the, him to mislead the people. Now, there is a little truth there. Jesus is the Holy One of God, okay, and, and all. But, you know, the character of the messenger matters as much as the message. As long as the message is truth and the character of the messenger is good, then it would have been fine. But Jesus knew this demon was not had no good motive behind what he was saying. He was challenging Jesus. He was therefore challenging God. And Jesus used this, excuse me, Jesus used this event to display his authority and to demonstrate his power over evil. The kingdom enters to conquer evil. And Jesus demonstrated that right off the bat. Now Satan, he, he knew this demon was going to lose in the end when he, when he heard about it. I don't know that he necessarily saw it because he's not omniscient. But when he was going to lose, and, and he lose big time. Because what happened is when Jesus cast him out, he cast him into annihilation. You know, we're going to talk about the, the herd of pigs later, but that's the whole reason behind the convulsions and the screaming and the yelling is this demon is gone. Vaporized in a sense, if we want to call it that way. He was cast into annihilation. And now the man was free. <laughs> I bet that guy did not even know how chained up he was he was free from this demonic influence and christ jesus set him free the congregation was amazed wow even the demons hear him so this new teaching including casting out the demon was from the new covenant that jesus was there so there should be like a trumpet right now da -da -da, enter the kingdom of god because that's exactly what Jesus is showing them. The demons obey, the teaching and authority, the spiritual prisoners are set free. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen? Yeah. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 28, I'm going to beat on that verse a lot, it's good you used it. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. Therefore, go. And make disciples of all nations. Jesus has been given this authority. And he's given it to us through the Holy Spirit. So we need to go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded. Because he's with us to the end of the age. That's what Jesus told us to do. You know, I've never witnessed an exorcism like that, but I've got friends who've been on the mission field in some pretty austere places where the Bible is very scarce, if existent at all, and they have seen some exorcisms that are kind of dramatic. But you know what? We have this authority to, to conquer evil, and, and you know how? It's at our disposal, and we, when we tell someone the good news of Jesus Christ, we're conquering evil. When we tell someone, it's that simple. We're conquering evil. We're exercising Christ's authority, and you have permission from the Son of God to tell, teach, and serve the lost and dying world this good news. And you're expected to do it. As a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit has filled you and in you, and you have the gifting and the privilege to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ. You are an ambassador for Christ, I believe the way Paul put it. 
So believer, let me tell you something. You need to confront evil. It's everywhere. By telling unbelieving people the good news, the love of God expressed in the grace of Jesus Christ by his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we're supposed to be doing. When you do that, Jesus is reigning over evil because he's using us. See, when you conquer your fear of vocalizing your faith to someone, you're winning. And Satan is losing. All you got to do is tell them. Remember, fishing, just cast a net. Just tell them. I'll get to the sowing of the seeds later. But the kingdom of God can enter your life. Let, let the kingdom of God enter and reign in your life by becoming an active participant in the kingdom of God. By casting your net. Express Christ's authority over all creation. See, Jesus is fulfilling here what's in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come and your will be done. He told us that's what we should be praying. He demonstrates it quite vividly right here. So we, in conclusion, I want you to understand something. Jesus preached a simple message. He called some simple men. And he conquered evil in a very simple place, a synagogue. And that's all he asked us to do. Okay? He asked us to do that. To live under the authority of of the glory of his kingdom right here and right now, wherever he sends you and wherever he puts you. That's what he's called us to do. So in wrapping up this morning, believer, let me tell you, I want you to go out and tell someone about Jesus. You're not trying to convince them. You're not trying to argue. Just tell someone. Tell them about Jesus who forgives sin, who gives abundant life, who gives them access to God. If you want some help doing that, I, I'd love for you to come talk to me. We'll, we'll work on it together. If you want to talk about becoming a full partner, full member of our church, and you're not, come talk to me. I would love to instruct you on that as well. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not see the kingdom of God in anything I've said, then you really don't believe in Jesus. But you can. That's the great thing about it. And I'm going to tell you once more, this is how it happens. Faith believes with conviction and says in your heart, I trust you, Jesus, for your death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins. And you believe that without reservation, without hesitation, that he can pay for your death sentence. And in the course of doing that, you repent, you turn away, you get rid of everything that you've been trusting in before to get you right with God or to live your life. You repent, you turn it away, you put it behind you. Because everything we do must be about Jesus first. Come see me to understand this better if you'd like. Let's pray. Father God, you are great and mighty. And you have sent such a great message. Your kingdom has entered the world in a very vivid way. We see it through your son Jesus Christ. May we believe it in our hearts. May we take that permission you've given us to share Jesus to those around us and conquer Satan and evil and win for the kingdom of God. You've called us to do that. There's no, no doubt left. Your word says it plain and clear. We are called to serve you. May we do so, Father. Show us how. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.